internet, I'd rather fight waves than dive bombers. My name is Matthew Kroll. And Rolls-Royce engine, no sweeter sound out here on the water. My name is Shahir Dowd. I'm going to put an asterisk next to that before we Whoa. before we move on. What's the asterisk? It, you will, we'll talk about and it. And this <laughs> is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Dunkirk? Do you, you have to say it with an accent? D- I don't know. I've yeah. never been. Dunkirk. Dunkirk? Is it Dunkirk? I don't, whatever. <laughs> I, 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 whenever I hear it, because I'm a fucking super nerd, I'm like, Captain? Well, we're um, visiting Dunkirk with a special guest. We returning are. guest this time around. Dun, dun, dun. Ivan Kander from the Reviewed Podcast, also a writer at Short of the Week, and also an extremely talented filmmaker. Welcome back, Ivan. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Fun fact, Ivan, your uh, Star Wars episode that you appeared on is one of our highest ranked episodes of all time. I don't think that's by accident. You know, <laughs> when you've got a, a guy with a speech impediment and my dulcet tones, it's bound to get infinite amount of downloads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of actually, which one was it? Because I know we, we plagued you with doing one of the worst Star Wars movies. Was it um, Attack of the It was the third one. What, what is the third one? Uh, what is uh, the third Revenge one? of the Sith. Oh, was it Revenge yeah, of the Sith? I thought, yeah. I thought we gave you something worse than Revenge of the Sith, to be honest with you. So Yeah, you could have given me clones, and so I'm really thankful that I didn't get that. So. We could have given you the first one. That's, that's, uh, we could, what was the first one called? Uh, Phantom Menace, baby. Phantom Menace. We could have given you Phantom Menace. That, that's, that's, that's rough. Welcome <laughs> back, dude. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Busy, but good. So thanks for, I'm excited to be here. Hey, yeah. And, and this was a good time to get you out to the movies. Uh, uh, so I hear Matt, um, Ivan is a dad just like myself. And ah. so occasionally we share stories about uh, the, our inability to see movies. I think respectively, we both have a podcast just so we have an excuse to see movies, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? You guys are setting up franchises. <laughs> pretty, yeah, pretty much. much. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was like, I was like, t- I told my wife and I'm like, well, I have to go to it now. I mean, can I just go? So I actually, she let me, uh, she let me off one evening and I, I went to go see it. Um, I'm curious though. I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead. I know that you guys have tons to talk about, but what did you guys see Dunkirk in? What was your format? I saw it in, uh, well, this is the thing. I saw it at um, a thing that said 70 millimeter, yeah. uh, but it definitely wasn't. No, what I think you, what I, so you saw it at the Lincoln Square yeah, AMC, the, yeah. which has a, so what you saw was a 70 millimeter print of the film, but it wasn't the IMAX 70 millimeter experience. Right, but now is that the same, now is that the same projector that say Quentin Tarantino used for Hateful Eight? Yes, it would be. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, so you would be. have seen an actual film print. Okay, good. Um, then but, that's but, what I saw. But you didn't see it in an expanded format. You didn't see it right. in, um, uh, in IMAX, for example, um, I have a long and fascinating story about this, which I'm going to get into. I'm going to save okay, for the well, review. Well, well, yeah, let's save it for later. I'm but just, but, but Ivan, just just for yourself, where did you see it? Well, how did um, you see I it? I saw it at the uh, ArcLight uh, Theater, uh, yep. and I saw it, I saw it in widescreen, but that's not a. It's basically it just means a big screen, but it wasn't an expanded IMAX actual okay. print. I mean, it was actually playing at 70 millimeter, a film print, which is what I saw hateful eight at the AFI here in DC. But, uh, I don't know. It just, I was like, I just couldn't get over there and all that kind of stuff. So also, it doesn't I seem like based on what Matt said that it was that big of a deal to see it in an actual film print. So, I mean, it looked, it, it looked like film. I, yeah. I don't know if that, I mean, that's good. Um, <laughs> and to be honest with you, I saw the hateful eight in 70 millimeter and, but I saw it at a theater, which, uh, uh, 
the, it was on, it was, yes, it was a 70 millimeter print, but it was on a tiny screen. And it was like, well, what's the point of this? You know? And I was, <laughs> I remember seeing hateful eight and loving the, the 70 millimeter. Like I, I, I was like, Oh, like I, do I think it's worth all the trouble to go rebuild these project? No, but like now that it's here, yeah. I'm like, that's great. Uh, and I feel like it had this really sort of visceral, uh, it had an effect, yeah, yeah. um, where this, uh, I, I think, and I honestly think it's because we can get into why, but like, I think it had more of an effect in a, in a, looking at a bigger picture of a smaller space. Well, I saw it in IMAX, uh, in the full IMAX 70 millimeter print. And we'll talk about that in a second, but Matt, uh, I want to get to some of our uh, listener emails. Uh, first off, we've been uh, getting all our emails at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. People still been sending us requests for movies that we have not been fulfilling because we're two lazy douchebags. Whoa, whoa. We're <laughs> one lazy douchebag and a very handsome, uh, bachelor. That's oh. very busy. Oh, thank you. I'm not a bachelor anymore. But I know. I, appreciate well, I, this I, I, I got, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. <laughs> um, so Matt, what have been people talking to us about? this week well it's funny uh that uh ivan is back too because now uh a previous star wars episode guest for attack of the clones gregory baldwin oh right wrote us in and what is greg uh, he said just finished the baby driver episode he wanted to clear up that kevin spacey literally has a line or a scene saying why baby is his driver uh and whether or not uh it's facetious or not he calls him his lucky charm quote unquote yeah no i get i get that i think and ivan have you seen baby driver I have. Uh-huh. Okay. The the only, I think the question we're coming up with was the, the issue of uh, Kevin Spacey using the same people or crew twice. He only uses baby twice in the same grouping. But uh, I think, I think, what was that? Oh, I was just going to say that, like, uh, I listened to your baby driver episode and I think I'm on Shah- team Shahir for that one just because, like, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that movie when watching it. And then the more I thought about it, the more it kind of bugged me, like just stuff that doesn't work like plop stuff and like, like, like Kevin Spacey's character, like, like turning into flipping. the love monster yeah, at the end. Like, he's yeah. like, and it's all about love. Like, it's just like stuff like that. I, you know, you know, what's weird, Ivan, is the more I've walked away from that film, the more I feel like I've been harsh. I've been overly harsh on it. Like, well, I, it's I, because it's, it's that thing where if everyone's super positive about something, you feel like it's your like contractual obligation to like, Take every, take every, since you hate fun, you have yeah, to take yeah. out the enjoyment <laughs> from everyone else. Exactly, exactly. No, but also that the, uh, you know, I did a funny exercise this week where I was trying to think about what I, what I actually thought about Baby Driver. And, and I want, you know, the, they, in a push to try and get more people to see Baby Driver, they, they released the first uh, scene of the film online in its, in its, in, in its entirety. Um, and so I watched that and then I watched it back to back with watching the opening scene from Drive, which is literally the exact same scene. Um, just told in a different way. And mm-hmm. I was like, what, what, how, what, how am I responding to each of these scenes? And I got to admit, um, I still respond more. I get more chills. I'm much more excited. I'm much more tense by drive than I am by baby driver. Even though baby driver is ostensibly a more exciting scene, it, if there's something about it that doesn't quite work for me, even though I kind of like, I look at it and I go, Oh, this is all really great. And it's actually even better than I thought it was when I saw it the first time, you know, like the synchronicity between the music and, and, and you know, the, the action beats, but I still get more out of the, the, I, you know what it is in drive. I'm much more interested in that character. You know, it's so interesting. And this is going to be uh, a great thing moving forward. Uh, this we're going to, I'm sure we're going to talk about character in Dunkirk and, and just sort of the, the different ways for the three of us. Anyway, I, I'm very interested in what draws us to not a character, but characters in general. Yeah. Uh, I'm the exact opposite. I feel like for drive, I'm not drawn to anybody. I feel like they're all just sort of cookie cutter, but, I, but that's me. Right. Uh, in baby driver, I feel like they all have enough personality where even though they are sort of star, 
archetypes like i can still get behind him like i know who griff is i know who doc was i know baby and deborah and you know all this shit said so, bats so like i don't know anyway uh to just conclude greg's email he points us to a um on premiumbeat.com there's an editing uh and sound baby driver um article that he says is interesting it's like basically about uh before anyone who's worked in post can appreciate it and it tells how jamie fox is able to hit the lines perfectly and like all these sort of things so check that out if you if you're interested in that also he um he basically says uh double side note you guys gave edgar wright the most <laughs> awkward verbal blowjob ever uh <laughs> thanks greg no it's weird it's weird because we both love edgar wright yeah. but i feel like i i mean i i felt you know like and it's that weird thing about and ivan i'm sure you have this as well like when you're doing a podcast about uh filmmakers you love but you don't like the film that they've made and it's an awkward thing because you're a filmmaker yourself you know you're kind of like well yeah, who I want to be honest with Edgar Wright. Yeah. Who am I to, to criticize Edgar Wright? Exactly. You know, who am I to criticize any of these people? You know, like, like, yeah. you know, who am I to get, uh, you know, like to say bad things about any movie, I, but I, I want to have an honest response to every movie that sure. I have. And yet here we go on Dunkirk. And here we, this is going to be an interesting <laughs> one on Dunkirk. Before we move on again, you can hit us up on Twitter at only movie pod. Uh, uh, we had uh link Sonata. Uh, no, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Link Satonaka. Okay. Uh, on Twitter, talking to us about theater quality. Um, uh, when, what was our conversation about? Oh, it was the Christopher Nolan thing about theater. Quality. We've been talking about Nolan a bit these last couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm gonna. This is gonna be a perfect segue into into my experience with with Dunkirk. But uh, speaking of theater quality, I saw Spider Man in the front row at a recently renovated AMC Ooh. Real D 3D. Uh, the fact that this roast even exists is unconscionable, and at the same <laughs> price point at the rest of the theater, 3D does not work for that angle. It wasn't in focus. The picture was warped because we were right under the screen, and one had to physically turn their head left or right to see the frame. Yeah. Well, well, if you're in that situation, you just don't go see the movie. Like, I guess, but it, it's not assigned seating, right? Like, in some um, AMC's are changing that. I, I'm I'm really snooty about this because I tend to only go to theaters that have assigned seating. Yeah, now, I'm so I can there show too. up like literally as the movie is like start. Yeah. Excuse me. As it's starting and just like sit right in the middle. So I'm like climbing over people, you know, to get yeah. to my reserved seat right in the middle of the scene. But I don't have like time to go to a theater like 45 minutes to stake out a seat, you know? Right. Yeah. The only downside to that is now <clears throat> it's funny because when it first happened, I feel like everyone sort of like really paid attention. Mm -hmm. uh, now people just go and sit wherever, like even in these assigned seats and you have to go up to them and be like, hey, that's my seat. And then they act all confused and you have to show them your ticket and you have to literally kick people. <laughs> and I have no problem doing this, but it does. Does, I'd still like that better. I think I'm still on your side of this, Ivan. I like having to kick people out better and getting there five minutes before the movie starts rather yeah. than being like, I need to get there so early to make sure there's a good seat. So I, I just like the rush of power I have in telling <laughs> people they have to leave the seat that I've already paid for. It's, Look at it's my one authority. of the few things I have. To hold on to. <laughs> so a couple of things on this. In New Zealand, uh, every seat is an assigned seat, which is always great. You can just, you just, you know, you buy your ticket and you go. Um, the second thing is I always pick, um, if I'm going to a movie where I want a good seat, uh, usually, and here's just another sad thing about being a, a dad and a movie reviewer is I usually go to a movie by myself and I will go to a movie theater, which I know is, is, has a low pop, um, population of people attending. So I will, you know, kind of get a good seat. Plus if you're well, a single, I mean, well, first off, <laughs> I think going to the movies by yourself is the best way to go to movies. I so, love I mean, it. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Are you talking, you're not talking to your you know, friend or significant other while the movie's going on. True. Think, but the, this, this is where I disagree. Well, agree and disagree. Watching the movie by yourself. 
a delight. Yeah. Having to walk home and have no one to talk to directly okay. right after yeah. the film about the film. Really sad, no. especially when you're walking out and you're seeing all these other people discussing the film with their friends, family, Fair loved point. ones. Fair point. And yeah. I'm just like, oh, you know, you know, what's great about it that I found recently is that in, in like in Fight Club, single serving travelers, there are single oh, serving yeah. film goers who like you'll see you'll see someone coming out of the movie theater and they'll be by themselves and you'll kind of like do an you know, acknowledgement of each other. And then maybe <laughs> if you walk past each other, you might like, so what do you think? And, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, so uh, in in response to Link, uh, son, uh, I'm just going to say her, uh, his or her first name on Twitter. Uh, I think you should uh, just walk out of the movie theater, especially a 3D movie sitting in the front row. Yeah, um, but he is right. Or, or they are right. I should say the the it makes no sense to have that seat available. Yeah, that's literally a or money it grab. should that's, be like a discount. seat. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A $5 that's, seat or whatever. That's exactly. basically a little bit of what I was talking about last time about movie theaters not doing due diligence. And those are those are small paper cuts of things that will slowly but surely drive people away from that theater experience as opposed to like staying home and investing in like a home theater. So let me talk to you about about the small paper cut of of uh of uh, due diligence that destroyed my movie going experience oh, this week. Ooh. Uh Christopher Nolan, thy name is irony at this point because uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, we talked about it last week, had kind of railed against uh Netflix. If just ever so slightly, it might have just been a passing comment or something like that. But but the gist of it is Christopher Nolan wants people to go to the cinema to experience his movies. And you know, this is why he makes movies in IMAX. So I, I being the person that I am like, you know, ponied up $25, $25 for a yes. single seat at the IMAX 70 millimeter print, uh, at the Lincoln square in, uh, in times square. Uh, and I got a, uh, a middle rear seat, uh, you know, perfectly, uh, balanced for the audio experience and perfectly balanced for the visual experience. I, I knew what I was doing. I, yep. I got in there. Then the movie, well, first the trailer started and the Justice League trailer came on. And then, you know, Matt, you know, I don't watch the trailer, so I have my headphones in. But I was like noticing, geez, I really got to turn up my headphones to like defeat the sound of Justice League in the, in this thing. And it was like, and it wasn't like just loud. It was overmodulated mm-hmm. and it was like distorted and it was peaking. And I was like, huh, that's strange. And, and then the movie started. And after the first bullets flied, you could see my entire row put their fingers in the ear. And what had happened was this movie was so overmodulated that it was actually painful to hear to uh, listen to. And now I know that people have been saying this is a loud movie. So are Michael Bay movies. Michael Bay movies are loud, but they're clear. This was loud, distorted, and actually caused me physical pain to listen to. It was so, so bad that I have to say my review is going to be tainted entirely by this experience. What I did afterwards was that I went I you went, stayed the entire time while it was blowing out your ears. I, I mean, because I was, I would so have gotten up and yelled at somebody. Yeah, <laughs> I. So this is the thing, though. Um, Christopher Nolan mixes his movies loud. I, I saw Interstellar in the same theater, and it was. It was loud, but it wasn't like distorted loud. And so I was like, there's this thing that happens in movies. It happened to me once previously in another experience where people aren't sure if this is the way it's supposed to be because you're in a battle scene and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to be able to hear what people are saying. Sure. But then there would be like silent scenes where like um, Kenneth Branagh would be speaking and it was like. 
it's really hard to understand what he's actually saying when there's nothing going on around him. And it's not because he's enunciating badly. It's because, and it's not because there's a lot of ambient noise. It's because he's overmodulated and peaking to a point that it actually is completely blowing out what he's saying. So after the movie, I kind of like, you know, asked a couple up. Uh, well, first thing I did as a super nerd is as the movie, was, uh, as the credits started rolling, cause I didn't do this during the movie. As the credits started rolling, I downloaded a, a decibel meter onto my phone <laughs> <laughs> and I started, and I, I started doing a test of like, how loud are these credits? And it was 102 decibels. 85 decibels is the point at which uh, hearing can be damaged, by the way. And this was 102 <laughs> for the credits, which is just the music on its own. And and if you know any uh, anything about sound as well, sound works in a logarithmic fashion. Yep. So 85 to 100 isn't actually just 20% it's louder. Like, it's, it's actually it, double or triple the, the uh, perceived hearing. Holy shit, I can't believe you said there. I know. I'm, I, I feel like a dunce for doing it, but I was like, maybe this is, you know, and you could kind of make it out, but I was actually, I spent maybe 60% of the movie with my fingers in my ear and I went down and I talked to AMC guest services afterwards and I, and there was a line of people all saying the same thing. Hey, you know, like was this, and, and AMC were like, well, you know, look, we don't know. We just get the print from IMAX and we just play it. We do, they have quality control. And the funny thing was because I stayed through the movie, uh, and did that decibel reading <laughs> super nerd, uh, at the end of the movie, a title comes up and says, and literally says, uh, to, uh, give feedback on your quality experience of IMAX, email this address. Oh, and, and I did, I emailed them. So you that. wrote a sternly worded letter to Chad IMAX. Yeah. To Chad Dear IMAX. sir or madam, Dear sir, Mr. Or, Mr. or Mrs. IMAX. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I emailed that, that, uh, it was, it's called quality control at IMAX or something like that. I emailed them. They emailed me back within an hour and said, Hey, uh, we've had a couple of complaints about this. We're going in to check it out right now. And so they went in that night. I got an email back at 2 a.m. saying, we apologize sincerely. There is something wrong with this theater. We are recalibrating it as we speak. We quality tested this theater with Christopher Nolan last week, and it all played fine. Obviously, there's something wrong. Then he emailed again wow. later on to give me a full apology uh, for ruining the experience. Did he give you a ticket? AMC yeah, gave me a ticket. Okay. AMC okay. gave me a, a ticket to go see any movie again, including an IMAX movie, which I appreciate. But then at the same time, I like to book my tickets. I, I don't want to go in, you know? Yeah. It's a little weird, but, but, and then you got an email from Christopher Nolan. And then I got an email from Christopher Nolan. <laughs> How's saying, he doing? He was like, Hey, Dude. could you come in and like check out the mixing of my next film? And you're uh, like, I would, but you destroyed my eardrums. It was, it, <laughs> I'm I, deaf. I have to say, because like I normally listen to a podcast on the way home from the theater, I couldn't actually listen to a podcast. Dude, uh, it was that bad, and and um, and that's not no one's fault. That's AMC's fault. And again, going back, that's like not a paper cut. That's like a sledgehammer to your your. Especially after you've paid twenty five, and the problem is you don't oh, get that. Dude, experience I would have been back. so annoyed because you you've set up so you've like you've done everything you can do in your control to make that experience like the perfect cinematic experience, and when it's yeah, it's just so it's like when you go to a movie and you see the boom in the shot because the projectionist has framed the uh, print correctly, you know, yeah, like that yeah. kind of shit. So. But, but then, you know, again, this is, uh, I think Matt and I had an argument last week about like, um, what is, but what you can control and what you can't control. I don't think Christopher Nolan obviously intended the film to be seen no, this of way. Of course not. I don't think AMC intended this to happen. IMAX certainly didn't given the way that they responded immediately and went and corrected the print. Um, you know, like, but the, the problem is honestly, it's, you know, you can have all your checks and balances. You can have the director come in the week before with the technician that helped build the technology and set everything perfect. But at the end of the fricking day, it's being run by high 
school and college students that don't give a shit. Nobody's going into the theater as it's playing and and going, hey, that's a little loud. I should go check that out. I, I When I went and saw Wonder Woman, it was out of focus. I went and complained to the usher. It remained out of focus yeah, the entire you're movie. You're only as strong. When I went to see yeah. Spider-Man Homecoming, the lights were on for the first 10 minutes of the movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> like they trust in the automation and they trust that that, that everything is just going to work out okay. And these are the type of experiences that we've all sort of described that are going to poison this thing that Christopher Nolan is trying to protect. And it's just very ironic that mm. you can do all of your checks and balances and still it comes down to the front lines. And, and the worst thing is it's coming down to a reviewer, myself, who's only going to see that film through that experience. You know, like, like yeah. it's, it's, uh, I, so maybe I like, you should watch it on a plane next. I was actually tempted to go back the next night, uh, but I was just too tired and I did. And I, well, we'll talk about the movie sure, in a second. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but uh, you know what I liken uh, the theater going experience to? It's coming closer and closer to airline travel today, which is that it, we are, we, the, the, the patrons are no longer patrons of a theater. We are cattle to be shipped in, you know, ushered through quickly and then, you know, the replaced as quickly as possible. Shout out to Okja. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you had an interesting experience watching IMAX, I actually tweeted about this and people started uh, emailing and tweeting me back about how they, they, they felt the film was very, very loud, but not distorted. Um, but if you had any interesting experiences, a friend of mine went to see um, IMAX the following night and uh, I tweeted him saying, you're welcome because uh, I feel responsible for having uh, recalibrated his theater. And did he have a good time? Uh, I haven't heard back from him, so he's dead. He can't hear. dead. No, he can't hear the message. Uh, <laughs> the message notification anymore. Uh, wow! But if you had an interesting experience, please reach out to us at onlymoviepodcast.gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. We really appreciate all the movie requests that we get. I know we're we are uh, slow in returning those, but we will get quicker one day. And here's the thing: we're about to get trolled pretty hard. I hear. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, there's been some verbal requests from people. Yeah. Uh, nothing in writing yet. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, for the emoji movie. And uh. the, the idea is if enough people write us that we have to do it. Now, I, no one ever said that. Right. Uh, but it's, I mean. Here's a fun fact. Uh, Dunkirk and emo the Emoji Movie are battling head to head for the number one box office this weekend. <laughs> <Holy> <laughs> Literally the best reviewed movie of the week and the worst reviewed movie of all time are battling head to head for box office dollars. And uh, the Emoji Movie is not doing that badly. So that goes to show anything about um, the value of the Holy crap. Yeah, I just looked up Box Office Mojo. Um, it's actually doing pretty well. So. What, what, are, what are the numbers, Ivan? You said you have it up? It, it's going to make about $26 million this weekend. So it's pretty good for a movie that has like 0% in Rotten Tomatoes. So not there's bad. A, there's <laughs> a great article in the New Yorker or the New York Times uh, this week about the push for uh, Hollywood studios to uh, license intellectual property instead of stories. And they talk specifically about how we got to the emoji movie um, <laughs> because the, and like, and they talk to the writers of the upcoming fruit ninja movie, because there's this idea that, that Hollywood studios are just uh, wanting to license intellectual property. They want name recognition. Well, they want an audience. And, well, and so it doesn't well, matter if there's a story or not. Well, to be fair, I mean, I also don't, that doesn't really bother me all that much because you can get just an IP and make a great movie like the Lego movie, which is the exact same, like on the surface, the same soulless, yeah, like yeah. cash grab as the emoji movie is. 100%. It's just, they happen to get good filmmakers who know, like who want to tell a good story. So like this, I don't think the, the property matters. It matters on the creative talent. You get to actually turn something good out of that property. So I don't know. It, yeah. That is possibly true. However, I do think that something like the Lego movie, Legos are an interesting, um, I, I let's call it an IP or something because it 
the Lego Corporation, even though, you know, some of their stuff is priced up and toys and whatnot, it is something that has, from its inception, been very like, we believe in creativity. Like, that's been sort of a motto of Lego. So I think, just uh, just to finish this up, it's it's like, I bet you it's easier to get a creative group of people together to work on the Lego movie because they have fond memories of Legos and they used to create with Legos and now they get to create something else with Legos and everyone's creative. Whereas the emoji movie, I mean, let's let's look at what an emoji is, right? An emoji is, is a little piece of uh, graphics that you use for one of two reasons. One, you're too lazy to type a word. Two, uh, you, you want to inject humor that you didn't earn into a sentence and if you just take those two things and like let's make a film based on that you're not going to get the best clientele or even give a shit about story it's made to have stories be shorter and less important I, uh, my favorite thing is that someone reviewed the emoji movie with emojis and the first uh, emoji was the shit emoji. (laughs) Oh, let's see. That's the meta shit. That's that's some high, high quality gifts on Reddit shit. Uh, but moving on, we are into, uh, Matt, this will be our first Christopher Nolan film on the docket. This is the yeah. Ivan, how do you feel about Christopher Nolan? Um, I have a complicated relationship with him. Oh, really? Your Facebook <laughs> no. status is awkward? Yeah, very it's awkward. No, I, um, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I don't think you can like movies and not at least respect Christopher Nolan. Like, yes. I don't think that's a thing. And he's one of the few, um, filmmakers that exists today that his name alone will sell a movie. Like mm-hmm. it, there's so few people that can do that. He makes, he makes, I like that he swings for the fences. He makes big movies that are meant to be seen in the theater. He literally shoots it on the biggest format physically possible. Um, and I, I just, um, I, going back and looking at his filmography, I think it's interesting to look at how he's kind of evolved as a filmmaker. Like he started out kind of as like, um, Vince Mancini of a film drunk has a really good article about this, but he kind of starts out as kind of like the mind fuck guy, like yeah. the, like the, like all about playing with structure and weird yeah. twists and stuff like that. And he's kind of evolved a little bit away with that. And I think Dunkirk's an interesting like point in his career because it's with the exception of a structural Nolan quirk that is a part of Dunkirk everything out this is his most straightforward movie by far and I don't feel like he's trying to mind fuck you like he is with with Memento and the prestige and even a movie his first movie following has got like a lot of flashback trickery that he does to try to trick his audience so I think he's evolved I think he's evolved as a craftsman and he's become a better writer and it's interesting to watch that happen that being said I think even a movie like Memento, which is universally beloved and I respect quite a bit, I don't know how much you get out of that movie on repeat viewings, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to uh, humbly disagree with you about the Memento comment. But uh, yeah. wow, uh, Matt, how about yourself on Christopher Nolan? I mean, I've, I found him through Memento um, and I remember Memento just really blowing my mind entirely. And then that was right around. Maybe it wasn't right around, but it was right around when I started getting DVDs. Yeah. And then like the whole thing of it was like, whoa, like this is so cool. This movie. Oh, my God, there's a secret code you can punch into the DVD and it plays the movie in the right order. And then you do it and you're like, oh, this isn't as good. Yeah. But like, I I just remember having that sort of like visceral excitement and then disappointed in that. And then the, the, the thing about Memento for me, but you're disappointed in, in yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, not, not, not the, the film, movie, not the film. Yeah. but, but I will say as, as I, uh, grow and move forward, uh, it does sort of fall into a bit of the, uh, fight club land for me, mm-hmm. which meaning I still watch it. I still enjoy it. 
but the 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 cracks in the armor of these films are now filled with the glue of my nostalgia of love for it when I was a younger man. Wow, that is uh, uh, that is quite an analogy. So, <laughs> I, I, and again, I, I, I try to realize that on a personal level. Obviously, I love uh, the two out of three Batman movies. Um, I think uh, Batman Begins is. It's it's odd to say this. The more I watch that and The Dark Knight, I kind of like Batman Begins more. Okay. Uh, even though Heath Ledger is a is a god when it comes to the Joker, but then uh, The Dark Knight Rises is the rare film that I feel like I could write a math equation where my interest and appreciation of it uh, goes down like at squared or cubed each time I watch it. Right. Uh, I was atrocious by the end, and then and uh, I love Inception, and I also uh, I liked the first two thirds of interstellar. Uh, but there's been lately, I feel like there's just been a drop off of me really like being a, a Nolanite. And, uh, I know that's a, a personal thing. And that's why honestly going into this, I wasn't like, psyched to see Dunkirk. Okay. Uh, I obviously knew it would be technically, you know, impressive and there'd be, you know, there'd be a lot of praise to give it. Uh, but it did not, I, I, I'm not a big straight up war movie person anyway. So that's probably step one. And then step two, I've just been a little bit let down each, a little more each okay. film <laughs> each time a little more. Yeah. What about you Shear? Did you go yet? No, uh, no, I haven't. And uh, you know what, before uh, we wrap up this episode, what I would love to do is for us to rank Christopher Nolan's films. Again, just kind of loosely what you think of, you know, just so we can kind of get a sense of where Dunkirk fits in. I think that'll be a good way to kind of uh, see our enthusiasm for the film or not. Um, He's given us homework. Ivan. we haven't <laughs> even finished the review. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. I actually I mean, just looked up his filmography to make sure I've seen them all, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I think I have. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure everyone's done this at some point. Like top three Christopher Nolan movies is a pretty straightforward question that most film geeks have asked at some point in their lives. Um, uh, I love Christopher Nolan, but I do. I agree that there are uh, flaws in the armor. The problem, the, the issue is, is that I saw Memento at the exact right time in my life. It was the point at which I started making films, and I was like really into. Uh, experimental films or the idea of um, films that missed with structure in interesting ways. And I thought that the thing that was interesting about, say, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan, as opposed to, um, say, uh, David Lynch and Mulholland Drive or something like that, was that I felt that there was a nexus between what Christopher Nolan was doing structurally and what he was trying to do uh, narratively. So, sure. so I, and um, I was doing a bunch of work with Polaroids um, at the time. And the first frame of Memento is a Polaroid exposing itself backwards. And, and I was like, Oh, that's such a great idea. And cause I knew that the story was going to play out backwards as well. I kind of watched that. And it was one of those moments where I was like, Jesus, I wish I'd thought of this. Um, and then when the movie played out, I just thought it was genius. Uh, I still do. Um, I absolutely adore everything about it. I went and watched his, uh, his first film following after that. I think I, I'm, I'm, I, I, it, it upsets me that more people haven't seen following, um, as opposed to people who've seen say Kevin Smith's clerks or, um, or Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi, uh, because following is in the pantheon of great first film, you know, great independent first films. And I think following is one of the best ones I've ever seen. Huh. I'll uh, check that it, out. It's, it's, it's nearly flawless. I've watched it like four or five times. Now I've watched it with the commentary. Um, it is, it's, it's incredible. And, and basically the thing that I love about following is the filmmaker that Nolan will become is all evident in following. Like everything that he does amazingly in Memento is, is, is there in play. Inside and falling. You know how sometimes you see a first-time filmmaker and their first film is kind of them 
trying stuff out and it's the second film that they really get yeah. going. Um, yeah. It's like they need to clear their throat before saying something profound, like that kind of idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Uh, and, and yeah. And Christopher, Nolan, it wasn't, that wasn't the case. The filmmaker that he was always going to be is the, is evident in following. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I actually went back and watched following, um, after I saw Incep- not sorry, not inception after I saw memento as well. And I had the same thought. I'm like, this is totally the guy that's going to go make memento. Like yeah. you could just see it. Like yeah, it's exactly. just crazy. It's, there's no, there's no way, you know, and, and it, and it's, it's as technically proficient as Memento, despite being on one twenty fifth the budget, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, also fun little spoiler, uh, or fun little, uh, Easter egg is in following. There's a prominently featured Batman poster, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which I always thought was, uh, interesting, interesting foreshadowing. Um, uh, I, I really, um, you know, admire his comic book movies. Obviously uh, I'm not a big fan of Batman begins, but I think it ushered in, uh, it, without it, the dark Knight doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and so that's, you know, where that is, but the double edged sort of that is without it, we wouldn't even have the, the, we wouldn't have the Snyder verse. We wouldn't have like, yeah, this, we like, have- and I, at, at some point I'm like, are these movies good enough to really warrant the me thing about- these other ones coming into existence? <laughs> Batman, the thing about Batman begins is I find Batman begins almost unwatchable on re- repeat what? viewings. I find the dialogue in that. There's a, it's there, there are, there are a lot of, um, <laughs> there's like, I, I've rewatched Batman begins recently. And I think that movie's got a lot of flaws. Like it's got a lot, like a lot, a lot of just, like you said, bad line readings, like horrible acting, like choices yeah. are made in that movie. <laughs> it, it is. And it's like, it, it, to me, it, the, the, it gets into that thing where actors are talking ideas as opposed to talking and it becomes, Oh, you mean I, a Christopher Nolan movie? I think he like the Dark Knight seems to to usher away from that pretty pretty radically. And the thing is, Bat- everyone only talks in ideas in the Dark Knight. The Joker's entire script but, but, is ideas. But but you believe those characters in the Dark Knight. In in Batman Begins, I I believe that these are ideas written by a writer. Whereas in the Dark Knight, there there is a, a a line between the philosophical leanings of who a character is and what they're saying. Well, so, to be fair, also, um, I don't think he wrote he didn't write the script for the uh, Batman Begins, right? He that no. was uh, David S. Goyer, correct? Yeah, David Esquire. Well, he wrote it with him. And also his brother, Jonathan Nolan, works with him. I I think Jonathan Nolan wrote a little bit of Interstellar. Well, wrote a lot of Interstellar before uh, he took over Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But yeah, Batman Begins... it ushers in a new era. And so you have to like hold it up for that. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a comic book movie. Unlike another comic book movie I've seen. I just find watching it now... It's, it's, it's chalk against, uh, I just like, nails against chalk kind of bad. Sometimes. I just like it because it's, it's a movie that's not a comic book movie. It's, it's, ba- it's based on a comic book, but right. I wouldn't even call any of the three of the, well, maybe the dark Knight rises leans a little bit more into it. Cause Batman and Bruce Wayne could teleport instantly. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, we can go over that all day. I agree with you that there are certain shots in Batman begins that are so beautiful and so unlike anything we'd seen in a comic book movie, the, the, there's the one where Batman is standing over the city of Gotham and it yeah. kind of swirls around him and the, and the, the score is really like kicking in and it's just like, it kind of raises the movie up to art form. Yeah. yeah. But at the exact same time, the fight scenes are so poorly shot. Yes. Um, it's some of the worst action filmmaking I've ever seen. And one thing I think is really interesting is you get to a movie like Dunkirk. And again, showing the evolution of craft, he has gotten so much better yeah. at showcasing action because uh, just watch any fight scene in Batman Begins, you have literally no idea what's happening. So. You, know, you know what I think that is as well is I, the, uh, so there's a couple of qualities about Christopher Nolan. One is that he ha- obviously has an auteuristic 
uh, passion about time. He, he's really interested in the way that time unfolds and can fold on top of itself and the way it relays. You see that in Dunkirk as well. The second thing is, I think as a story, t- the, the, the funny thing is I find Christopher Nolan's films, and this is going to sound bad, but, but it's not in a pejorative sense because it's actually a plus for him. I find his films quite ugly and I find them ugly because I feel like he never stops to like actually create beautiful moments. He is an unrelenting storyteller. He just wants to push the story forward as quickly as possible. If you watch the first 10 minutes of the dark night, there is, there is more story in the beginning of the dark night. Like just in that first heist, um, there's so much stuff going on that, that that could fill an entire other movie. And I feel like he doesn't like really want to slow down to like make, he doesn't do what Zack Snyder does, which is like make the moment, the, the movie just about the moment. He just pushes forward story-wise. If he happens to catch beautiful moments in amongst that, that's a plus. But I don't think he genuinely works in that way. I agree. I just think that um, it's funny because I think it all goes back to personal preference, right? So like I can appreciate his movies without sort of those, those moments, like those beautiful shots that some directors would be like, no, the movie revolves around this shot. Like this yeah. needs to be done. Christopher Nolan doesn't do that. Push the story forward, etc. I think the problem uh, arises and it's happening more and more, at least for me and my experiences with his films that, uh, the story being pushed forward is now at the expense of character. And when it gets to the point of where I think Dunkirk kind of, it rides a weird line, but it comes dangerously close to story pushing forward so hard and not giving a shit about any actual character. Like there's char- groups of characters or archetypes of character, but not an actual character. I don't, get any emotional like leverage or like it doesn't grip me in a way. And then all of the, the, the visceral combat and the, the feelings of being in war and, and this being a real life thing, though, even though you're doing everything else, right, you're not hooking me on an emotional level. And then that's where I start to have problems. Well, tell us a little bit about Dunkirk. What is, what is Dunkirk about? Oh, I'll read the IMDB. It'll be really fun. Evacuation of allied soldiers from Belgium, the British Empire, and France who were cut off and surrounded by the German army from the beaches and harbors of Dunkirk, France between May 26th and June 4th, 1940, during the Battle of France in World War II. Now, that's the description of the movie, which is hilarious to me. Right. Because... (laughs) It sounds like a Wikipedia entry. It's a Wikipedia entry. It's a newsreel. It's like, yep, this happened. Yep. Like, <laughs> and that it, it oddly uh, is the perfect, the perfect analogy for what this film is. It is a matter for me. It's a matter of fact. Here's something that happens that I'm going to show you in a crazy visceral way. That's it. <laughs> well, Matt, tell us. I mean, well, uh, what? I mean, let, let's go in circle here. I'm going to go second, and so we can have Ivan have the last word sure. on uh, our opinions on the movie. What did you think of the movie? Uh, I let's see. How do I put this? Uh, okay, I have a lot of feelings about the movie, but I'm going to boil it down first, and then I'll sort of nitpick in. At the end of the day, I was bored. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's the horrible thing uh, because I can, I know there's a lot of greatness in this film. Uh, I really enjoyed it on a technical level. The battles were, were like the fights and it wasn't really battles. It was just like the, the violence, even though um, like it just, it, it felt like a war and yeah. uh, that was good. And it looked, it looked that way. I really like the, the use of time. Ivan, what you were saying before is like how he sort of evolved from this being like, 
a gimmick into like an actual like storytelling device that not, it's not like it's not like oh wow time's so crazy but it's like oh this is great because you're cutting out all the fat of these three groups of people if for those of you i guess this is minor spoilers but dunkirk is kind of broken up in the beginning from the perspective of the soldiers on the beach from the perspective of um the the um the the ships coming in to save the soldiers and then uh three air force pilots um and it's and it's what is it day or weeks days and hours or something yeah. like that yeah the first the first story is told uh it has a week till the three stories have a point of convergence and, yes and the opening crawl tells you how far apart that point of convergence is so like that's really cool and like it's cool without overstaying its welcome you know how we talk about i get caught up on gimmick filmmaking right like uh, boyhood for me <laughs> gimmick filmmaking this is not a gimmick what he's doing in my eyes this is just like the natural evolution of a a um a tool of filmmaking that he loves put into something very technically sound um that having been said uh the tension that this movie builds only comes from a technical standpoint. There's a lot of trickery going on to make you feel really, really like nervous and tense. And the second you kind of look behind the curtain, at least for me, yeah. is when it lost me. Now, there's a couple different things um, that they did uh, sort of like I, I've been reading a lot of articles based on the the Shepard visit uh, Glissando, the sort of thing he did in the score. Okay. Where it's the it's basically plays Wait, three, you mean Hans Zimmer. Yeah. But yeah. It, but it's the thing that Nolan does in a lot of his movies and he's used it sparingly before. But this was like almost straight through the entire thing. So it's three different tones. You should look this up on Wikipedia. It's super interesting. Uh, it's three different tones. The the high tone starts volume wise low and gets higher. The mid tone is straight throughout and the low tones start uh, uh, is really high and then get lower or something like that. And what it does is it gives you, it tricks your brain. Uh, a Vox article called this the barbershop pole effect for sound. <laughs> you know how barbershop pole spins and you have the vision like, oh, the stripes are going up. Yeah. This gives you a a feeling in your brain of a of a, a musical sort of crescendo building 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 but it never stops it just keeps building and i've listened to some examples of it it's crazy he used this throughout the entirety of this movie yeah and it it got exhausting and it got like and, and, and not like oh my god i can't believe it. i'm on the edge of my seat like oh like you need to get out of here is it over yeah and that sucks like he, he's used it sparingly at the bat pod that used in the sound effects for the bat pod, it used the same thing because it yeah. always sounded like it was revving up no matter what it was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and alongside that, it was just the, 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 the nail in the coffin for me and for this movie was there were no characters. I can't tell you a name of a character. And I tried, I lit like I tried to, after the first half, I'm like, I got to learn someone's name. Like right. this is important. But do you think it's a, it's a case of not knowing their name or not knowing who they are? I, I, but I just want like I want the movie that I'm watching to care enough about the characters to make sure I know their name and not in a way that like shitty writing does like if this was a if this was a shitty uh, script Shahir and Ivan I would always say your name Ivan when I was talking to you Ivan like that like not like that just like make sure your structure of your story makes the audience care enough to know a character's name he seems so uh, like obsessed with the story and sort of like trying to just get you through it that that it comes at the expense of like getting you attached on an emotional level outside of a group think and that for me and again that's a that's a me thing that's not I, I just that's something that's never grabbed me yeah so all in all despite the fact that on a filmmaking level I can see this and be like holy shit this guy's good he's 
just too good in the spots in, in, that that don't grab me as an audience member, and therefore I uh, I really didn't enjoy my time. I didn't like dislike my time. Right. It just wasn't. I don't know. I I wanted to like it more. Okay. Um, uh, Ivan, I'll try and go very quickly through this cause I we, Sorry, really want to hear, we really want to hear your opinion on this. Um, I, 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 one thing I like about the evolution of, of Crispin Nolan's career is that I think he's gotten more and more to be akin to a, a conductor as opposed to a director. And I think that the, the quality of his films have become, especially his collaboration with Hans Zimmer have become much more symphonic. And so if you, and I think this begins even at the end of the dark Knight rises, the final act of the dark Knight rises. The reason why I actually like the dark Knight rises, despite it's many, many story flaws is that it, it reminds me of kind of uh, a Wagner kind of um collision of all the storylines clashing into each other. And it's, it's, it's accompanied by this singular score, which like makes it to be a symphonic experience. And I really, I actually really like that, 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 that he's making movies that feel like symphonies more than they feel like movies, movies. Um, and I, I, I like that about, um, uh, actually, I like that about Interstellar as well, even though I don't, uh, uh, sorry, about Inception uh, and even uh, Interstellar as well. I I'm, remember everything I'm going to say is tainted by my experience, which means I actually, the, the Hans Zimmer score was so ovomodulated in my screening that it was actually really hard to hear what it was doing. And there was only like a couple of moments where I was like, oh yeah, okay, that's, this is how this kind of plays out. Um, so, so. I, I really like that about his, his filmmaking. I, I disagree. I agree in part with some of your points about character, Matt. I, I think the stuff with Mark Rylance on the boat is actually really, really good stuff. And, and I, I just recently watched uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, The BFG with Mark Rylance as well. And boy, I, I really like this actor. He won an Oscar. He's a great for, actor. For a Bridge of Spies yeah. a couple of years ago. And I think what he did in this film, or what they were doing around that story in the boat was really interesting. And I really liked it. Overall, though, I will say this about the whole film. You know, when IMAX wants to have special screenings to highlight their format, they have that those films like Dinosaurs or Space Ex Exhibit or something like that. This feel Dunkirk to me feels like the history version of of a of a, yeah. a basically an IMAX um uh, an IMAX test tape uh, that, you know, done by a really good filmmaker, but it doesn't feel like it actually gets into something beyond being kind of a recreation of events. Mm -hmm. I think, I think his, his messing around with time structurally is interesting and it has, it, it creates a couple of lovely moments, but it also creates moments that are unnecessarily confusing entirely agree. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that actually doesn't help the film. Um, and, and it feels like just, uh, a way to inject, uh, a Christopher Nolan esque stamp on this history exercise. Um, so I am, I wasn't as enamored by that. I, I think it's a very now again, I saw it in IMAX 70 millimeter. Um, and some, some of the scenes are just breathtaking, you know, like the dog, they, they shoot all the dog fights in full IMAX 70 millimeter. So it's the full 60 foot screen, uh, top to bottom. And the entire dog fights are in those sequences. And apart from the, the, the piercing sound, yeah. it's actually, it's actually beautiful to look at, uh, you know, still, still without the kind of, 
you know, like, again, he's not like Michael Bay who will kind of like create a shot, you know, against the sunset just because, you know, he just kind of pushes the story forward. Um, so Ivan, what did you think of the movie? Um, I think I liked it better than both of you. Um, <laughs> Good. I, I, um, I have a lot of issues with the movie. Um, and I had a lot, I have this issue with Christopher Nolan where the more I think about it, the, you know, the more chinks I find in hit the overall veneer. But that being said, I, I found, I just was, I was profoundly moved by this movie and I can't tell you why, because as uh, Matt said, there is no characters in this movie. Um, it, it, there's like no, really no emotional stakes except for the violence subplot uh, to a certain extent. Um, but I just found it such a compelling um, work of craftsmanship that I just kind of couldn't look away. And then I was thoroughly engaged. Um, there's a final sequence uh, in the plane that takes place at sunset. I found those images so beautiful and so powerful, just the imagery of them. I was tearing up just like looking at it. And I was yeah. like, I'm just so glad that Christopher Nolan exists that he was able to capture this. Like I just, right. nobody else would have used real planes. Nobody else would have just done it like this. Yeah. So um, I find that just remarkable. And this is like one of those, you know, if Christopher Nolan's job is to get people to go to a movie theater to see a movie, then he undeniably succeeded in <laughs> my opinion, because this movie would suck on a, on a, on a TV. Like it just wouldn't be as good. Um, I, I, there are a, a litany of issues, uh, with the film. I, I'm obsessed with time travel movies. So a part of my brain loves the, um, the cerebral exercise of piecing together the timelines of the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, that being said, you could argue that it may, as Shaheer said, makes the movie um, uh, unnecessarily obtuse in, in ways that are confusing and kind of take you out of the moment because you're trying to piece together when something happened earlier and this is happening now in this sequence. Um, and there's also a lot of like, it seems weird because he's such a great craftsman, but there's a lot of these I think there's a lot of editing problems in the movie that don't relate to the time structure, but are just confusing about what's actually happening. And I, I, I kind of need to talk about that more in spoilers because I'll, I'll screw over some big moments in the movie. But I found certain certain moments to be very confusing in how they were um, told. And I don't know if – and obviously he knows what he's doing. So maybe you guys can enlighten me on what was actually happening. So, right. Well, we yeah. could get into spoilers now. Yeah. I, and, and to that point, Ivan, I think this is actually something that's true of of every film that uh, Christopher Nolan's made. And, it's, and I think it's true of that that thing that I was talking about earlier, which is that it feels like – it feels like Christopher Nolan is less interested in the beauty of what he's making as opposed to like pushing the story forward. Again, you know, I, I hearken back to, I think the point at which where this works best is the opening of the dark Knight, which is, which is, it's, it's a hodgepodge of editing. It's, it's like they're just cramming in so much story into that movie and it really does work. But then there are other points, um, uh, I, the only the only thing I, I I get what you're saying with him like pushing story forward because it is very much his focal point. But he's also the filmmaker that has created so many purely joyful visual moments. Like I can think of every movie he's made and think of like iconic visual things. Like Inception is has changed the way that we like think about how like visual effects in movies work. Like the hallway fight in Inception may be the most one of the most memorable scenes ever, right? And that's got nothing to do with story. It's all visual, right? But it, but it's connected to story. And and I think my point is 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 that he's not a filmmaker like Michael Bay or you know because he works in the same palette. Well, he, he's not interested in making postcards, is what you're saying, yeah, right? Like he's, he's not. not a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. that that's my point. Is I I don't think I think if he finds a beautiful image in amongst the story he's telling, that's that's wonderful. And he's and obviously it's the it's a it's a secondary concern to him. But that's what I I feel like it's a secondary concern. Like I I don't feel like whereas for Zack Snyder I feel like it's a primary concern. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and yeah, I think that's a fair point. I, I think you could argue that depending on what your interpretation are of various scenes, but I think that it kind of fits this MO of Christopher Nolan as being this cold filmmaker. A lot of people say that about him, especially the way he deals with characters. Like uh, Devin Faraci, a former film critic for Birth, Movies, Death, he had a, a quote a couple years ago that I always come back to where he thinks that Christopher Nolan's never had sex. Right. And the reason <laughs> the reason he says that is because all like the relationships in the movie feel like a writer like writing what love theoretically seems like but has never actually like experienced it themselves like you can go to Anne Hathaway's dumb monologue about love and inception and uh, not inception in uh, interstellar uh and even the relationship between Cobb and I forget his wife's name in inception yeah. it feels like it's a it, it that relationship needs to exist because from a story standpoint you need to have Cobb longing for something but it never actually <laughs> resonates on an emotional level yeah. and it's interesting to me with a movie like Dunkirk where Christopher Nolan's like yeah I don't he's like he, I'm terrible at writing these characters I screw that I just want to tell this event and capture this event and that's what I'm good at and it I, it's an interesting experiment because I think it could go one of two ways and it could go the way of Matt and you could just feel totally bored because you're not you're not into the emotionality of these characters but it also could be like me and just be like just so caught up in the retelling of the visceral experience of this event that you are just very taken with the film so yeah I mean and I think I I, I wish um I don't know. I wish I could. I, I, I nothing gets me more sad than seeing something that I know is done incredibly well and I should for all intents and purposes enjoy yeah. and not enjoying it. And at, at one point I walked out, I want to see this movie with my friend Katie. And at the end of it, I walked out and she was, lo- she loved it. She absolutely loved it. I was watching her watch it on occasion and she literally was like, you know, really tense and on the edge of her seat and all this stuff. And the rest of the audience seemed to be as well. Right. And then I'm like, man, there's something wrong with me. Like <laughs> I, 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 it became, it became like a, why don't I like this? And that, you know, you can only go as far as your own taste and whatnot, but, um, it, it, it I'm, I'm glad Ivan that you had that experience with the movie because you had the experience that I wanted to. And I don't think it's like, it's funny. Cause when a movie doesn't reach a certain level that you want it to, there's different ways it can fail you. I don't think Christopher Nolan failed me. I think I knew exactly what I was going into. He delivered exactly what I believe he promised. And it's just not the type of entertainment that grabs me. Are you Uh, saying it's not you? It's me. Basically. It's not, it's not him. It's yeah. 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 (laughs) That is literally what I am saying. You've boiled down my long ass comment to uh, that, that diatribe, which is incredibly true here. No, I think it's, I think it's a fair point. I think this is going to be a movie that's going to, I think you're going to fall on either side of the spectrum for this kind of film and either, you kind of um, like I, I came back from it. my wife's like, oh, should I go see it by myself now? And I'm like, I don't know if you'd really like it because I can't tell you like there's not there's not really a story story here. It's not. Well, maybe you disagree with that you hear, but it's it's just the event. It's not like it's not like uh, Saving Private Ryan, where it's a story about trying to find a guy caught behind enemy lines. Yeah. And blah, yeah. blah, blah. Or it's not like uh, even um, the more recent Mel Gibson one, Hacksaw Ridge, Hacksaw which is Ridge, like about yeah. a, like an actual like it's a story about this character that takes place yeah. during a war. This is like the, the story is, the is that Dunkirk <laughs> happened. I like, mean, you can even look story. at the names of these films, Saving Private Ryan versus Dunkirk. Yeah. What is 
important in these things. Well, Hacksaw Ridge is also the name of the place that, that had, you know, that. No, but I'm just saying, using those two as an example, one is about saving a private named Ryan, and one is literally about the entirety of Dunkirk. Right. Like, it's just, it's the point. I mean, it, and maybe this is me being a dumb American, but I think this film might be more interesting to me because if you're an American, I guarantee you you're not learning about Dunkirk as a primary topic yeah. of World War II coverage, you're going to be hearing about D-Day and the Pacific Theater because America was directly involved. But here's an event that is very British in 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 its um, resonance, you know, like apparently all the actors are all British. Uh, Chris Nolan's British. Like this is a very British story. Mm-hmm. So maybe I find it more interesting from that historical level because I'm just not that familiar with you know this what, event. You know what I got out of this about being British? There's nothing more quintessentially British as jam on toast and tea. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. is like, if you want to be British, having tea is the most quintessential thing you can do. Um, I, I, I think all of your points lead into something, you know, if this movie is an entirety about, Dunkirk. Um, my feeling is, is that this is, you know, again, it's kind of like IMAX commissioned Christopher Nolan to make a film about <laughs> Dunkirk and he injected some character moments into it. And I think they're, you know, I think for the most part, they kind of work. But my question, my broader question that I kind of am thinking about in this is what is, how, how do we function as a society in relationship to the way in which our cinema portrays war? And, and, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to guess that all three of us at this table are probably anti-war people at some point, right? Like we're like, we're young, fairly liberal leaning, um, you know, mid thirties or early thirties in the case of Ivan, Ivan actually don't know how old you are. So I'm not going to ask you on, on, um, I turn 32 tomorrow. Oh, oh really? Happy, happy birthday. Wow. Happy <laughs> almost birthday. Uh, and, and for anyone listening, that's actually today on the release of the podcast. Oh my God. So that's the, right. So wait, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Ivan. Uh, it's very Christopher Nolan to mess with time. <laughs> but that's um, I'm, I'm going to guess we're all anti-war. Now I could be wrong about that. Um, I have an interesting quote from Francois Truffaut who wrote this thing, which he said that, that no matter how hard you try, there is no such thing as an anti-war film. Um, it's a quote attributed to Francois Truffaut who basically says, who's basically saying that no matter how much a film is trying to be anti-war, the fact that you are portraying war on screen ultimately makes it in some way pro-war. Um, well, cause you're changing, you're changing war, a horrible thing into a means of maybe edutainment, but or, there's still a matter of ed- entertainment in. Well, that. it's, it's the equivalent of a, and this is a lesser known war movie, but Sam Mendes jarhead where they're I, showing the scene from apocalypse now to write, like to get the soldiers excited. Like, yeah. um, and you would argue that obviously Apocalypse Now is like a very anti-war film, but they're literally in the U.S. Army like showing that as like a way to like pump guys up. It's interesting so like that, that I think film, that's oh sorry go ahead yeah. sorry sorry no, I, I think that just kind of illustrates that quote basically yeah. yeah yeah and I and I think that it's interesting as well because Apocalypse Now has that sort of very famous flight of the Valkyries moment, which is supposed to highlight the irony of war, but but it all it does is it creates this beautiful war moment, um, and I think I think you know there are very few cases of war films that are really decidedly anti-war. Um, an interesting one, actually, that's that's on Netflix right now is David Michaud's film with Brad Pitt called War Machine, uh, which is an interesting play on the anti-war film. Um, but, but uh, you know, I'm curious. You know, when I went to see this movie, I noted that very 
most of the audience were young, military-aged, able men. That's what, and and I and I talked to a few people afterwards. There was a guy who was like a mil, uh, who was passionate about military history, and he was like, "There's no way I can get my girlfriend to see this movie." And and you know, like it is all. Well, there young. was almost no women in this movie, right? Yeah, but there was no women, very few women in the I audience. Understand. And I'm curious, like you know, like what function does the if if we're? I mean, okay, Ivan, you're kind of you you found this movie riveting, spiritful, uh, you know, like emotionally driven, but but. But do you think that that an audience would watch this movie and kind of celebrate their militaristic history or would they, you know, like walk away from it going war is hell? Um, well, that's a very, that's a good question. And I, and I actually don't think that the movie paints the war is hell picture and it can't because it's rated PG-13. So it's it's yeah. oddly um, it's oddly um, missing sterile. like a sense of carnage. It's oddly sterile in it's a way that, you know, yeah. it's showing like horrific things, but in a way that never feels all that horrific. Like Mel Gibson is a, a director that almost fetishistically like enjoys watching like you people squirm when he shows violence which on screen. Ir- which uh, is ironic in, in his film about pacifism. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But this is, this is a movie that doesn't do that. It kind of lets you get away easy. So it lets you have the enjoyment of having British being brave and stiff upper lip. You know, you, you get Kenneth Branagh, you know, looking out on the skyline saying that's home and then the score can build and you can kind of get pumped up over that. But you also don't have to suffer the consequences of like watching a guy with like add an arm or something like that. Yeah. So I think that the movie is actually answer your initial question. I feel like it is pro-war in a sense. It's pro, it's, 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 I don't want to say jingoistic, but it kind of has like that feel of it, especially if you're, I, I can, I can see being like a British person who loves his country using this as like a movie, like showing, you know, steadfast will in, in the face of trials and tribulations. And, and, and I think that, that, uh, yeah, so I can't call this an anti-war movie. And it's interesting. It's interesting it's, you bring up the, the PG-13 is of it. Cause that was something that threw me too. It felt when I was watching it, I'm like, Oh, I was like, for lack of a better term, the, all this stuff that was going on on the beach, like, is these is the you know cinematic equivalent of a a, a brilliantly executed Call of Duty game. Yeah. Like, there's no <laughs> like, it's just like it felt every time it started feeling real, it didn't feel real because you didn't see the horrors of war. You saw guys getting bombed on a bridge and then you saw body bags. Like it's, you you see the beginning and the end, but not the fucking terrifying middle. And um. You know, <laughs> that kind of that did throw me off a little bit as well. And, and interestingly as well, I think, you know, like uh, maybe the, the an interesting case study here is Nigel Farange is the person who's kind of commented every youngster should watch Dunkirk. And, and he, sa- he says it uh, for, the, for the, you know, for listeners who aren't uh, uh, up to play with European politics. Nigel Farange is the person who led the Brexit movement. Uh, and he and he kind of uses Dunkirk as an example of of uh English steadfastness against European tyranny. And I, I don't, I 100% don't think that that was ever the intention of this film. And, and you, you know, it's hard, you can't argue that that intentionality is, uh, is, is directly correlated to uh, the way a film is received. But I'm curious, you know, like it's, it's hard. It's kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street, that scene in the Wolf of Wall Street where like, or, or anyone who watches the Wolf of Wall Street who wanted to be a broker, this is a film that's ostensibly about like how the, the life of a financial analyst or, you know, like that kind of person is terrible. But the first thing that'll happen is that every young person that wants to be a financial analyst will watch that movie, you know, 10 times and want to sign up as well. Yeah. They'll and, remember all the good stuff and not the shit at the end. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I think, you know, like there's just this, this sense about the way in which warfare is trade. And, and I, again, I'm coming from a point of view where I would never voluntarily 
enlist to fight war, to, to be a soldier, to, to enlist in, 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 to be engaged in warfare in any way. Uh, that's me personally. Well, I, uh, sorry, question, yeah. uh, no, no way ever. I really, no, I, yeah, no way. So ever. if there were, I mean, this is me, I think, cause right. I have a very specific situations where I would. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the, like if it came down to myself or those, my loved ones, uh, were in, it were threatened, uh, if war was coming very close or there were ways to like, like legitimate sort of things that like affect my, uh, close ties and world or things that would affect like little right. ripple effects. Uh, I a hundred percent would. And I, th- I think there's a breaking point sort of for everyone. And the, right. in- the interesting thing, like, cause I know for a fact, I mean, this is not I, th- that anyone would try to defend their family against something awful. Right. It's just when it gets to a scale of giant war, the thing I don't, I think that what maybe you're sort of saying is I don't like the idea, especially in our current political climate of g- enlisting into a system that I know is necessary, but also you, you now you are saying you need to take orders from people that you are not going to always agree with. Mm-hmm. And that's the scary part because in order for the system to work you must do that i guess my point is would you enlist if you were of, of age after september 11th would you have enlisted to for the military no um well i mean i'm sorry i, I um it's, it's interesting that you bring up this question because no i the answer is no i wouldn't uh but uh, my best friend um my best friend in high school and my current best friend did yeah, yeah. i had um, one too and he lost his legs in Afghanistan. So he's now a double above the leg amputee and all that kind of stuff. So, and I grew up in, I grew up in rural Virginia. I grew up in like, you know, stereotypical redneck country. So, I mean, I'm I'm the only Jewish kid in my high school. I, you know, everyone, (laughs) everyone is, you know, I I grew up in, you know, I I grew up, I grew up in Trump, Trump country, you know, and it's, and it's, um, it's dangerous with movies because you get a movie like American Sniper, which can be interpreted very much as, rah-rah Americana. And that's where movies get dangerous in, in this kind of thing where you present war as a valiant thing. And I don't think, and I can't say that Dunkirk to bring it back to that is, I don't think it's a, a, a it's not like that movie subverting that in any way. It's not challenging that, um, that kind of rah-rah, uh, heroic, uh, bland hero- heroism that we apply to like war heroes and stuff like that. So, yeah. And, and that's not to say that that history shouldn't be celebrated and history and the you know, like and that's also not to say that the people who lost their lives in at Dunkirk uh, should be um, should have their experience trivialized in any way. I, I'm no way suggesting that. Um, but but I, I just you know, like I have an uneasy feeling about war movies because I do. I personally enjoy the visceral thrill of muscular you know, action filmmaking. Yeah, keep talking. I, keep I, talking. I, 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 I do. You know, like like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, I think is 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 breathtaking. The, and do you and do you find like the battle sequences in Game of Thrones, like the Battle of the Bastards, yeah, to be yeah. thrilling and visceral? That completely, that kind of stuff. completely. I my and and I kind of I think I approach it from a slightly hypocrite the the kind of hypocritical point of view that that someone that who, only a film critic can offer. Well, someone who believes that they're enlightened in some way can can do. <laughs> yeah. Fair. No, you know, no, everyone, you know, like everyone. I'm not disagreeing. Well, I mean, I I think this comes down to like, it's okay. Like, and this is maybe me because I'm not, I don't think I'm as smart as you. And I'm not saying that in a self-deprecating way, but sometimes you just, 
enjoy watching stuff, man. Like there's yeah. something that's viscerally like you just enjoy. And this may be why I, I tend to like superhero movies better than you do. Yep. Is I just, that's sometimes it's going. just fun to kind of, it's, it's fun to kind of just go on that yeah. journey. And yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily feel good about enjoying my cheeseburger, but damn, I really enjoy eating it. But here's know? the thing. <laughs> this is why I think, this is why I think superhero movies and of that ilk are more than just the cheeseburger because, okay, why don't I like actual war films? Right. Yeah. I honestly think that there's some psychological level of me that does feel a sense of guilt or a sense of, of some, some badness, no matter how good the war movie is of me being like, fuck, like this is real. Like this is fucking terrifying and awful. And we're watching it and eating popcorn. Right. Like there's something weird to me about that. Whereas if I'm watching the Avengers fight the Shatari in New York, exactly, I'm getting yeah. all of my like visceral, like animal brain nonsense out, but I'm doing it in this weird safe space that uh, is so detached from reality that I it's I'm getting those feelings without any of the guilt of the violence. Now you could argue, you could flip that on its head entirely and be like, well, is are, are the pros better than the cons of that psychologically? I think they are. Here's, here's an interesting case study as well is that there was a, there's a recent book that's coming out by two authors called Tom Saker and Matthew Alfred uh, about the way in which the military, the CIA, the FBI, uh, any militaristic organization gets involved in Hollywood production, particularly the Marvel movies, uh, in order to like, even if they're not about war, they in a way promote war. And if you, if you are, you know, like uh, the, the, the Marvel films are all building to a title called, uh, infinity war. Um, and, 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 and again, it's, they're, they're not saying, you know, like there's a direct correlation, but there is a vested interest in having people be okay with the idea of going into the military or going into war for for the sake of patriotism, for the sake of identity. And I, I think that's fair, but do you think, I mean, getting back to this movie, do you think that Christopher, I don't think Christopher Nolan has that intention with Dunkirk. No, I don't, no. I don't think he has, but I, but uh, so, it does have a bit of a, but so yeah. I come back to that Francois Truffaut comment, which is that you can never truly make an anti-war film because the act of portraying war on film inherently does that whether you want it to or not. And I don't, I, again, and I don't think this is an anti-war film. I don't think it's a pro-war film. Again, I think this goes back to Christopher Nor Nolan being like, this is a good story. I'm going to tell a good story. You really like putting words in his mouth. Don't you? you really like, but, putting but words. That, yeah, because I think that's what it is. I don't think he went out to be like, to say like war was bad or war is great. I think he's using this, the, the stage of war to, to show a thing that happened in a very technical way. This is There's this quote that's been passed around a lot about yeah. this movie that Christopher Nolan has commented on, like just the lack of characters in the movie. And he says, uh, quote, the empathy for the characters has nothing to do with their story. I did not want to go through the dialogue, tell the story of my characters. The problem is not who they are, who they pretend to be or where they come from. The only question I was interested in was, will they get out of it? Will they be killed by the next bomb while trying to join the mole? Or, they, or will they be crushed by a boat while crossing? So it, it is... In his own words, all he cares about is creating like an isolated visceral experience of this event. And yeah. whether or not you respond to that, I think is kind of up to you as a viewer. Yeah, it's yeah. A, he yeah. cares about the actual facts of what happens to the characters, not who they are and how they got there psychologically or emotionally. In some ways, isn't that refreshing though? Like, didn't you, aren't you like tired of like having like the guy look at his sweetheart on a picture and then get his head blown off? Like, I, aren't you tired of that? Like, I'm tired of it when it's done poorly, but I, I fucking love it. Even when it's tropey, if it's done well and, and most, most people do it poorly. So this is a bit of a breath of fresh air, but if I had the choice of excellent character with real mo motivations in a wonderful war film or just wonderful war film, I would choose the first one. I guess my <laughs> point is here is that I think it is, uh, yes, 
nice. I agree. It is a technically mar. It's a technical marvel. I think the the issue that I start to come down with is I don't think the film has anything to say about anything other than being a representation. And I think I think Christopher Nolan is a smart filmmaker, and he wants to basically put the make it make the the message, if you will, of thematic importance to be uh, entirely tied to the experience of seeing this movie. And it is an experience to see this movie, but, but, but a filmmaker he gets compared to a lot is, is Stanley Kubrick and Stanley Kubrick made two war films or three war films in his life. Uh, they are pods of glory, Dr. Strange love and full metal jacket. All very message heavy movies. (laughs) I, I find that they're all films that have something to say about the experience of war. They are not just simply representing the war experience. They actually, they're actually interrogating the war experience and they're trying to find, uh, and and sometimes that experience is absurd and it's funny, you know, like in the case of Dr. Strangelove. Um, sometimes it's profoundly brutal, like in the case of, of um, Full Metal Jacket. Other times, like in Paths of Glory, it's profoundly, it's a profound representation of the way in which humanity operates. And, and, and I think the thing that kind of, you know, again, my experience was uh, somewhat dissipated by my, my actual, the actual presentation of the film, but I did find that although there were great moments, I wondered what these mo- what the what the impact of these moments were, and I felt like this film was basically a celebration of the 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 heroism that endured this event, and a celebration of of the the British notion of the I guess you could c- quantify it as the stiff upper lip, but but yeah. Mark Rylance's story where he you know at the towards the end of it where he basically like his son um, lies to the Cillian Murphy character about the death of his other son uh, in order to to save him from the the you know like knowing that he was responsible for his death you know is a is a sort of a celebration of this the the grace under fire um and and you know even the reading of churchill churchill's uh memo at the end of the film is kind of that same celebration we will continue the fight no matter what you know we even we will endure and 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 i think that's fine i just don't think that the film quite quite interrogates that idea in any way um oh i agree entirely and i and i can't really defend it on those grounds because I think that you're right. I don't think that this movie, I think it's really unfortunate that Nolan is compared to Kubrick because I can't, I, I think they're very different filmmakers, Entirely like incredibly different. different. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that people just get confused because they happen to, they happen to make big movies that look cool, but yeah. they're, they, they, but that, that is like the only similarity they, they, I, I couldn't think of two filmmakers more different than exactly. Than yeah. Two. I think, I think they're compared because they have the same stature at Warner brothers, for example, you know, like they, both, yeah, they're just, mm. they're just names. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're big names that are attached to movies. Like Christopher, like even people that don't know movies know who Christopher Nolan is as a director. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, why but yeah I, I don't think this movie uh you know if a big knock against this movie i agree is that i don't think it has larger aspirations i just think whether or not you're here for the ride is up to you but uh, it's this isn't a deep movie in the sense of what it's trying to explore about the human condition and war and all that kind of stuff so well it's interesting even just a quote that you uh you said ivan from christopher nolan about like he doesn't care about the sort of motivational stuff he cares like if this character a lives character b dies etc it brings me to sort of a bit of a this is a i, I think i think i just figured out why i didn't like it i uh, oh sort boy. of roll into my final thoughts um is that Okay, so I I am an 
atheist or agnostic in the sense that that means that like I don't think human beings are the best things out there. There must be something else. I just don't think it's the traditional any religion's gotten it right, whatever. So I do believe other than the importance we put on it, human life, all life on this little rock is kind of pointless. I don't think there's a grand plan. I don't think there's anything like that. I think we are a wonderful happenstance that basically, again, going back to a Joss Whedon quote, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do. So in that sort of sense, if Dunkirk and the film can't be made to bother treating its characters as people and not just chess pieces, I can't care if they live or die because I don't think that a chess piece has any intrinsic value. Therefore, I'm not going to get emotionally involved in it. If you tell me a story about the chess piece that makes it more than just sort of a, an empty vessel of like, oh, person A, person B, person C, I can get behind it. That's why I think the guy on the boat was the only character. The the What was the actor's name? Mike Rylance. Yeah. Rylance is the only one that like I even, uh, you know, got behind a little bit. And the fact that he was so good was jarring because it, that doesn't happen anywhere or else so tonally it was always different when we went back to the boat well um, i think that would be I, I mean i don't think that's entirely fair because i do think that like i think that there is something interesting he's doing where characters are making choices but they're doing it completely wordlessly and the choices have meaning behind them um like you know the tom movie, hardy's the movie doesn't present that like i don't i don't i mean yes it do do i believe what i like to believe that like every character has a reason for why and blah, blah, blah. And do I need it for everyone? No, but like, I, again, I don't, Tom Hardy's character. What's Tom Hardy's character's name? I don't think it, ma- it, doesn't but it matters. Does. There's, there's something we're, it matters. We're, we're, we're putting him in the, in the, in the trope of, Oh, it's Tom Hardy. So no, well, no, that, well, first off, I think it's hilarious that Tom Hardy's in this movie because <laughs> he, literally his eyes, uh, that's said, putting him in gas masks. Yeah. I've, uh, yeah, I know. Right. Um, it, 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 unintelligible gas masks because you have no idea even what he's saying through his radio through the movie. <laughs> but the thing is, the thing is, um, like, I think that, I, is it okay if I spoil stuff? Yeah, oh, yeah, Sorry. we're way beyond uh, that. We're doing final uh, thoughts. Okay. So if you want to roll into that. Oh, yeah, okay. I just wanted to double check. Um, like, this, the sequence where he's flying and he, um, you know, he chooses to turn back when he knows he doesn't have fuel to get the the, the remaining uh, Luftwaffe. Uh, yeah. uh, um, that's, a, that's a character choice that meant a lot to me when I was watching it. And, and the same thing could be said about, I think that the opening sequence with the, uh, the guy who ends up being the French soldier as well as yeah. the British soldier, where they're trying to sneak onto the boat by carrying the wounded person on the stretcher. That is one of the, I think that sequence is incredible. It is it because they don't say anything to each other at all, but you know exactly what they're trying to do. And you, you kind of sympathize with them and understand why they're doing it. Sure. And it's not heroic at all, but if you were in that situation, you'd want to do the exact same thing because you just want to get on that boat. And then, and then when they do get on the boat, they're screwed anyway. So like stuff like that, I think is real interesting well, and why the movie kind of worked for me. That's yeah. motivation, not character. And I understand there are there are good motivations in this. I mean, the, the, the movie itself paints a lot of reasons to do things. But again, the, the, those two characters and I, I'm using a name as an analogy for like uh, humanizing a being. I mean, we do it with anything that we name. We give it a more anything that's named has a more importance in our psyche. Uh, and the fact that like you're 100 percent right, like that, that motivation is so true. And I was and I did enjoy that to a point, but I, I couldn't get behind any of them even though i you know you they're there it's kind of a, a scummy thing they're doing uh but like i'm not talking about getting behind them morally just getting on board with their character arc because again it was just two dudes doing a shitty thing like so again i'm not the 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 bottom line about the, in this movie for me and i do want to get to final thoughts and then i want ivan to sort of to yeah, close yeah. us off uh, my, my <laughs> bottom line my bottom line is um i know i am in the minority 
I know this movie is wonderful on many technical acumens. I just don't think this is a movie that is made for me, and that's entirely fine. I do think if you are a moviegoer who loves films and seeing them in the theater, you should A, check if the theater's been properly uh, calibrated due to Shahir's thing, B, and go see it. Pay the money for it. I mean, if you're a Christopher Nolan fan, if you if you like war movies, if you just are uh, want to see something that is different, I think, uh, I think it's worth your time, but I just want to further let everyone know if you're not sort of even caught up in sort of the way Christopher Nolan makes films, it might not be for you. Uh, granted, majority of the people, it seems to be, but I think some people are going to fall into my little thing of just sort of like this feels the bottom line. I wrote this thing and it, I don't know if it's entirely fair, but I'll just sum it up. It, it felt to me like watching an insanely impressive magic trick, but you already knew how it worked. So you're glad like it's really like making people feel something, but it has no awe for you. Uh, and uh, for me and uh, I, but that having been said, it's better than 90% of the shit out there right now. So you should go see it. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know about you, but this has been like the best summer of movies, like in the past, like 10 years, right? Yeah, like, it's this been, movie, really this has been an incredible summer. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so far. So good. All right, uh, I mean, my, my, I think I actually, Matt, I agree with you, but for different reasons. I, I, I That's d- never happened. I, uh, I, I think I'm with Ivan on this in terms of characterization. I, I actually like the way character motivations are handled in this film. I agree that the decisions that, uh, Tom Hardy's characters m- uh, makes on the, uh, on the plane are actually well communicated. And I believe them and I'm engaged with them. Okay. Um, uh, you know, like as actually with all three stories, I'm, I'm completely there. Um, uh, my feeling is, is that, is that the film operates on a, on a level of, of, it operates on an experiential level. Like it works in the same way that, um, um, no, I'm not going to use this film. I, I, it operates in a way that, that like the dinosaur movies at IMAX do, which is that it is, it is, it is there to illustrate a technical feat. It is, it is done with sincerity. It is done with heart. It is done with, um, it is done with, uh, a true reverence for the subject matter, which in this case is the memorialization of, uh, of a, of a sacrifice that a people made. I think though, at some point, you know, like, the Francois Truffaut quote uh, mentions is the the thing that I find problematic about it is that is that a filmmaker as smart as Christopher Nolan um, opts not to 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 just to, to, to stick to keep it experiential. Now I I don't fault that as a decision making as a way to tell this story. I just find that the film is in fact uh, inevitably leaves me a little slight. Now. Again, I had a, a major presentation problem with my screening, and I didn't really get, I think, what, what the, the, the full impact of the way that this film could have been symphonic. It could have been a real, you know, like I, I, I do genuinely love the end of The Dark Knight Rises for its symphonic quality. I do genuinely love the way Interstellar kind of makes these like symphonic moments and, and, and Inception as well. So I... I, I missed out on that experience. And so I kind of, you know, just looked at it purely as, um, purely as events happening in front of me and, and as events happening in front of me, the film is, is simply documenting them. It's not in the same way that saving private Ryan asks a broader question, which is, is one life more important than, than the lives of many, you know, um, it's on the, the way in which the thin red line, uh, asks the way in which a war is, uh, is actually against the planet uh, as opposed to, you know, as well as humanity. So I don't think it does any of that stuff. And for that, it, it kind of, it comes slightly lesser on the Christopher Nolan filmography for me, but, but 
as an experience, it's a great experience. I'm, I'm troubled by the idea of the experience being jingoistic and potentially jingoistic, but you know, who knows? You know, like, people, like, you can't, you can't control how people interpret the work that you put out there. Exactly. The, the, the thing is like, I'm afraid to rewatch this movie. I'm I, I, much like I'm afraid to rewatch gravity, which I have not reseen since I saw it in the theater. Yeah. Um, because I'm afraid it's not going to work again. Like it, 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 um, because I was just so profoundly moved by the visceral experience of it. Yeah. Um, but even like the Dark Knight Rises, the, um, I know that movie gets a lot of crap. But like you were saying, she here, there are certain. Mo- I remember being in the theater, yeah. um, and being so incredibly like into it because it was just like it, the way that the score was building and the way the there's a sequence where Bruce Wayne is getting out of the prison and the score is rising and he's climbing and it's just it is it's powerful and it's. I mean, Christopher Nolan's really damn good at that kind of thing. And I think that from that Dunkirk, I kind of feel the same way. It's just him evolving a bit in craft and, um, you know, having less clunky dialogue because there's almost none of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, uh, I enjoyed my experience. I'm almost afraid to watch it again. Uh, but for the most part, I, uh, I think it is one of those movies that's worth watching. I also, you know, it is a bit of a cop out, like you're saying, for a guy as smart as this to just not make a statement on war. But you know what? I'm kind of okay with that. Um, I, 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 it's just, um, I, I don't know. I feel like uh, the idea that war is hell is not exactly a novel concept. So I don't know how much I need to see that painted again. Um, and it's, um, uh, and unless you have something really, really bold to say about it, um, I don't know if that's necessary. Um, I also don't want this to be used as a recruiting tool, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so before we uh, wrap this all up, uh, I said homework at the beginning of this, uh, of this episode really quickly. How do, how do you rank Christopher Nolan's films and where does this sit on that rank? If you don't want to go through the whole list, give me the top three. Let's just, and then- let's just do them all real fast. So okay. I'm going to go from lowest to, to highest. Okay. Uh, the dark Knight rises. Okay. Dunkirk memento inception, the prestige, the dark Knight. Batman Begins. Wait, no Insomnia? Where's Insomnia fall? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not see Insomnia. Insomnia's okay. fucking fantastic, by no. the way. Um, okay, I'll, I'll go. Sure. Uh, one is... Uh, Are you going uh, one from... Is fa- I'm going from worst to okay, best. Okay, cool. Uh, a little scared. I'm going to screw this up. I'm going to change my mind on this like 10 minutes later. But uh, I guess listing doesn't matter, but it feels so official right now. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to go uh, following uh, The Dark Knight Rises... Um, what I'm missing here. Wait, this, uh, is, this is your least lowest, favorite? lowest to highest. Okay, lowest to highest. Okay. Uh, yeah. Following the uh, Dark Knight Rises, uh, Insomnia, uh, in, uh, Interstellar, uh, Batman Begins, Inception, The Prestige, um, and oh, sorry, I missed Dunkirk. Sorry, Dunkirk, <laughs> The Prestige, and then The Dark Knight. So cool. I guess, I guess what, I'm, what I'm asking is where you place Dunkirk. So Dunkirk comes second on your list. Is that right? Second or third? It comes third. It comes third of and, all Christopher Nolan. And mine's first. second to last. Second and the reason last. the reason I say is I think that this is him. Uh, oh, I missed Memento. Sorry, Memento should. Yeah, be I was like, where's Memento? I, I thought you were. It should be to sorry. Memento. It should be Dun- so. Just in top four, it should be. Uh, um, it should be Dunkirk, Memento, uh, The Prestige, The Dark Knight. There you go. Okay. Wow. Um. I, I, I'm I'm with Matt on this one, and it's weird because I would I would know, but but what's weird? You know what's weird about all of our lists? We have all films like in wildly different places. My lowest film is Batman Begins. <laughs> my so you're not really with me. <laughs> my second lowest is Dunkirk. Then it goes Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Dark Knight, Insomnia, and my top three. I'm going to read them in order of one, two, three. 
Memento following the Prestige. Just to make it more confusing. Wow, following number two for you. That's very I, interesting. I is love that just fun. because you're like the indie filmmaker and you just admires the hell out of him making a movie for no money that shows his quality as, as a filmmaker? Like, I, is that? I it, is, that is certainly part of it, and I. But I certainly also think that that is also it's an example of the things he does really well encapsulated in a singular film without many of the flaws that that occur when he gets into a bigger budget. So yeah, Memento, following the Prestige, Insomnia, those four films, which are none of which are super. Superhero or crime films. Two uh, two quick que- two quick questions I have about Dunkirk before I just forget um, I, because I did not understand them from an editorial perspective. Yeah. Um, does are we supposed to believe that Tom Hardy shoots down a third plane while gliding? Is that correct? That is a very confusing question, and because I'm I not think, sure. Yes. And, 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 and I, and again, this is what I'm talking about editorial problems in the movie. That sequence isn't edited correctly because you never physically see him shoot down the plane from his perspective. Yep. Like there's never that shot from inside the cockpit where you like, he's got the guy yeah. in his thing where you see him like take down the plane that doesn't happen for that. So there's like this big climactic moment where everyone's cheering. I'm like, wait a minute. A, am I expected to believe that he shot down a plane without being able to maneuver it? And B, like, is that actually what happened or am I misreading the timeline or whatever? Because, yeah, because so. I was like, oh, is that the plane that was going to hit the ship? Did you know? Yeah, like, because, it, but didn't he shoot down that ship earlier, that, yeah. that plane earlier? So that's what I didn't understand. Yeah, <laughs> and also you don't see him like, yeah, you just basically see him gliding. Then you see Kenneth Branagh take like down. Cheer, like smiling. You yeah, know? exactly. And everyone starts cheering and it's like, uh, yeah, this is where that point of we're like, I think it's unnecessarily confusing. Uh, Kenneth, well, Kenneth Branagh, go stand on this dock for the entirety of the shoot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, do you, I mean, that, I think that's really interesting that we can have a guy this capable, but like, that's like an, like a small, like even like a basic editor would be like, this sequence is confusing. Yeah. And then, and then another, another good example is when the boy, um, when Killian Murphy throws the boy or hurts the boy's head, I still don't quite understand how that action happened yeah. and how it was like the, the staging of that sequence was confusing to me. And oh, I yeah. understood the, I understood the aftermath of it. Like, you know, he, he obviously Killian Murphy's responsible and I get that from action, but just purely from like, it's like missing a cutaway or it's missing a shot that makes that sequence make sense. I also read another thing where Killian Murphy was actually seen in kind of one of the other timelines being on board one of the ships that, that got, that uh, got destroyed. And so he he was, I I, I didn't see that. And I was like, you know, again, it might just be the fact that he was in the, he was in the ship at nighttime that got, you see Killian Murphy in that one. Okay. And it might just be a fact that everyone's white and dark haired and British, you know, that I'm like, Oh, you got that is a huge problem. And uh, yeah, everyone is exactly, looks exactly the same. Like I, um, I didn't even realize that the French guy died until (laughs) until he he drowns in the ship. And I'm like, wait a minute, is that the guy that's on the thing? Because they just look alike. Yeah. They all look the same. I mean, all, white people look the same. Everyone knows that. As the only brown person in the room, I'm going to refrain from You can say it. You can say it. We all know it. Uh, This has been the only podcast about the film Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Uh, Ivan, thank you so much for coming on and and discussing this film with us. When when you are not um, enjoying Christopher Nolan's latest theater of PG-13 war, where can folks find you? Uh, you can find me on the web on Twitter at Ivan Kander. That's K-N-D-E-R. My website is Lucky9Studios.com. That's the number nine, studios.com. And I write and edit for the website, shortoftheweek.com. 
Fantastic. Nice. Really great work, by the way. Also, uh, check out Ivan's uh, latest film, uh, Doctor Doom, yes. uh, about one of Matt's favorite characters, which I hear is now being adapted into a TV show by uh, Fargo creator. And they, they is it a TV took, show or movie? Um, it must be a movie. And it's they obviously took inspiration directly from you, right? Like they, they I mean, that's you. the only way that, I mean, honestly, there's no other way it could have happened. So, yeah, also um, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So congratulations <laughs> on uh, on all those royalty dollars for like selling your Oh, yeah. Up. I mean, I'm set for life now, guys. So it should be good. <laughs> but definitely check out all his work. Um, I actually am a huge fan of Ivan's short film, Pancake Batter, which is in typical Shahir fashion is, is his only, well, one of his uh, few non-superhero oriented films. And it's the film that I champion the most. <laughs> okay. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, where can people find you when you're not, when you're yeah. not hating on uh, our guest superhero <laughs> movies? <laughs> you can find me uh, on my website, shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Uh, you can find us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com, Twitter at only movie pod matt when you are oh boy here we go uh, when i'm not putting words in christopher nolan's mouth although i probably do that on all these places too you can find me you're putting words in my mouth now yeah i just i'm just doing it i'm just go, moving through uh matthewcrow.com m-a-t-t-h-e-w-k-r-o-l.com you can get me at skeletor the number four p-r-e-z on instagram or emperor m-s-k on twitter um guys this has been a super fun conversation again ivan thank you very much all right thanks so much guys i will uh, catch you again some other time all right well Thank you, everyone, for listening. We we love you. And uh, we will all talk to you next week. Bye-bye.